Hello, my name is Sebastián Castro Nicolescu, and I will be having a conversation with Keto Ziegler for the New York City Transoral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans-identifying people. It is July 17th, 2018, and this is being recorded at the New York Public Library offices in Midtown Manhattan. Hi, Keto. Hi, how are you? <laughs> I'm doing well. How are you doing today? Very wet, but very good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The day this is being recorded, there's there was a... Completely mm. unexpected explosion of rain from the sky. People <laughs> were cowering in the subway doors. I did not cower, I ran, which meant I got drenched. <laughs> <laughs> so if you were to take a picture of me right now, you would see wet pony head. <laughs> a lot of drip. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but hopefully slowly drying yeah. off. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, so maybe we'll get started by just asking where you're from. I am a fourth-generation New York Jew. Okay. My mom is from Brooklyn, my dad is from Queens, and I was raised on Long Island. Okay. Yeah. Uh, where on Long Island? I was... Uh, I did my, like, all of my, all of my schooling in a town called Jericho. Okay. Okay. Nassau County. Mm-hmm. Um, and what did your parents do growing up to, to have financial resources? They... My dad was an accountant. My mom was uh, an agent of capitalism. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's enough about her job. <laughs> she, like, made, she, like, designs and sells, like, all of those kind of promotional giveaways that you can put your name on. Oh, I see. And, like, bought mitzvah mm-hmm. invitations and, like, kind of printed materials. Okay. She that That's her, her deal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah. Yeah. And they both grew up working class and they were the first in their families to go to college and they both got master's degrees and they like said sort of did all the things that one was supposed to do, which was sort of and, you know, to give me the childhood that I had, Mm. Um, which is kind of funny because I sort of reversed it (laughs) both like economically. I went back to Brooklyn. I live a mile from where my mother and grandmother were both born. Um, Like in some ways I've regressed, but not yeah yeah but yeah hmm. um and do you have an earliest memory yeah dancing to the bgs and spinning around until i fell down <laughs> <laughs> that's a great earliest memory it's not bad yeah, yeah yeah i remember dancing in the kitchen to the bgs hmm. and so what were you like as a child then um, I was always a weird kid, you know, but like, I mean, it's the question and not the reflection on the question, but the reflection on the question is, you know, if I had grown up, if I were, if I were me now yeah, as a five-year-old or something like that, I think that, um, it would be real obvious exactly how queer I was, mm. but we didn't have that kind of language. This was the eighties in, in Long Island, you yeah. know, like, yeah. There wasn't the internet yet. There wasn't a whole lot of information. So I was just like a weird kid who was pretty individualistic and kind of did my own thing. Mm -hmm. Um, I grew up in a town that was like very conformist was like the word that I used in high school when I was really mad at it. So I was kind of a loner, but kind of not like, um, 
Yeah, I was a weirdo. They voted me the class individualist when I graduated from high school. <laughs> like, okay. just, you know, kind of theatrical. I started, I mean, a big strain that actually is still true in my life is that I was raised around Holocaust survivors and I was raised with like a really deep, um, never again kind of philosophy. Mm. And uh, the summer camp that I went to was actually a socialist summer camp. Wow. The Workman's Circle. Like, okay. I, 20 years later, I went to, like, Purim spiels in this building with pictures of my summer camp growing up. But um, I didn't really know that. But what I did know is that we shared space with people who were survivors. Mm -hmm. And every summer, they would tell the stories, and I would always, like, act out in the – or not act out, just perform is the Mm -hmm. word I'm looking for in the Holocaust Memorial Service. So, like, I was reading Ellie Wiesel when I was eight, and I started reading Gandhi when I was 11, and, like, Mm -hmm. got really interested in – and, like, Martin Luther King used to make me cry. And, like, all of the, you know, like, I got really interested in social movements and yeah. uh, hardwired from a very formative age about, like, about justice in the world and the things that you see and the things that you do. The other, like, sort of important bit about my childhood, too, that is has became a lot more relevant in the last decade is that I have one older sibling. So my parents both worked. Mm-hmm. They had to, you know, to give us this education that they had so valued and wanted to to give to us. And so when my mom went back to work, she had stayed home for like a few years when I was born. But she went back to work full time by the time I was in maybe like third grade or something like that. I have one older sibling, my an older brother, and he is, is was, and always will be a sociopath. So uh, I grew up in the shadow of this very, like, dark figure in my house and who, uh, you know, like, you know, it interesting sort of, like, thinking about concepts of peace and, like, mm. and nonviolence and, like, like, watching my, having, like, to endure watching my brother, like, torture our cats or torture me or oh, lock wow. me out of the house or, like, you know, sort of sense of empathy I think is rooted in that Mm -hmm. but also some habits and some things and I uh, experienced some trauma when I was nine that was pretty intense with my brother and his friends and uh, repressed it for a really long time so like I spent a lot of the and it came out like in queer space like Mm -hmm. (laughs) much much later in life and uh, has caused a lot of reflections about that time I guess and sort of working through that kind of stuff like it was you know there are a lot of ways that I experienced a ton of privilege and I'm very grateful for um in terms of education that I got and uh the relative calmness of the circumstances that I grew up in except there was also this other narrative that was happening at the same time Mm -hmm. which is my brother being a severely emotionally disturbed human and my parents being sort of like not necessarily turning a blind eye to it, but just not really having a lot of resources. Like, they didn't know how to deal with it. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, later in life, they're like, yeah, we took him to therapy for a year, but nothing really changed. So we thought, maybe he'd outgrow it. (laughs) He never outgrew it. Now he's also a pedophile. Like, we don't have a relationship. But, um, But I think that growing, like, growing up in the shadow of that was was an important factor in my development in some way in terms of, like, um, being the glue that holds a family together, mm-hmm. um, developing a sense of empathy, developing a strong, like, really deep interest in nonviolence, mm-hmm. um, you know, 
the need later in life to develop a chosen family because my own doesn't, you know, yeah. because of complications within my own. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, stuff like that. I think that is a lot of it. like weird, uh, radical songs in Yiddish that are embedded inside of my brain. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think that's the takeaway from childhood. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, I guess I'm just wondering then the kind of question of like where you started to encounter some of the resources that like led you to like you mentioned reading Elie Wiesel and Gandhi and like what were the spaces like where you kind of first encountered a kind of vocabulary of nonviolence and of justice um it was definitely like growing up in a conservative Jewish community because another thing is like I was raised in a temple my parents were like very community oriented people or very temple oriented people. My dad was like the president of the synagogue for like 10 terms in a row. And my mom did the sisterhood. And like I grew for the first 14 years of my life or so, I spent five days a week in the temple and uh, Zionist Judaism, conservative Judaism, like very uh, find your husband and, and we can't wait to meet the grandkids kind of culture. And I always knew that there was something like a little bit that, that I wasn't going to fit in that, but I also didn't really have language for queerness then either, because the other thing that was happening, um, as I was growing up, because I was born in 76, I graduated high school in 94, Mm -hmm. which was, I think the year before or the year that they discovered AZT, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so I grew up in the shadow of the AIDS crisis. So everything was like, uh, safe sex, condoms, silent, like death. There was a lot of death. Mm -hmm. Uh, being gay was a death sentence. That was very, very clear. There were zero out people in my high school. There was no GSA. There was no, um, I don't think I even understood what the word trans meant until I was in my thirties. Yeah. It was just not something I was exposed to at all. Mm -hmm. Um, I had one cousin who was gay and his partner and they both uh, passed away mm-hmm. around my bonnets at the time or so. Um, but I didn't even really fully understand. I remember like being like, I don't know any gay people. And my mom was like, yes, you do. Your cousin Ira <laughs> and Marvin. And I was like, whoa, what? <laughs> <laughs> They're gay. Okay. I didn't know what that meant. Mm. And, you know, and all of the complexities that we have all this language for now about, like, you know, homosexuality and gender and, like, the difference between those things. Mm. But then, uh, it was, you know, LGBT even, I don't even think was a thing. Like, it was just a little, it, like, we were the same. We have always been here. But, like, mm. the, the language and the structures that I could, that I could connect with were really different. I remember, um, I remember in the nineties I was in high school. I was old enough that my parents were very embarrassing to me Mm. and we were like in Manhattan together. We'd like come into the city to do things and, uh, wherever, for whatever reason we happened to be in the West village on the day of a wig stock. And it was flooded with drag queens like (laughs) everywhere. And I remember being so like, I'd never seen a drag queen before and I'd never, I was just like, wow, totally like fascinated by it. (laughs) And my parents were like gawking and being very judgy and being the Long Island Jews that they are. Well, you know, and I love my parents, but they are who they are. Yeah. And I remember like feeling this very distinct, like 
this is a different part of my life or mm. like that there was like a separateness here there mm. that like I was different from from where I would I, I always knew that I was different from from like different was what we used yeah you know um that was the word that described me like different oh she's different <laughs> but that was that was what we had you know um but there was an affinity that I felt towards this thing that I didn't fully understand. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah, that was the 90s. And, like, meanwhile, like, Riot Girl is raging across the country <laughs> and I'm listening to my Pearl Jam tapes, you know? Yeah. It's kind of funny, too. I've had lots of conversations with people of my generation around about stuff like this, like what culture reached you and what didn't, mm. you know? Like... Now I listen to a whole bunch of stuff that I wish I had listened to in the 90s, you know, like Bikini Kill and all sorts of cool shit. And then I was, I had my like Nirvana tapes and was sort of like into dude bands and like Hmm. would stare at girls in high school, but didn't really understand that and like dated boys because I thought that's what I was supposed to do. But, oh, there was also like, I had like a funny moment too when I started to like hit puberty or something that like was really into hair metal and like long-haired boys who like strutted Mm. around with all the makeup and like their crazy outfits and shit like that Mm. super into that yeah which felt kind of you know which is like like both hyper masculine and extremely feminized at the same time Mm -hmm. and like my i had my entire walls of my bedroom covered in like these very pretty boys with a lot of makeup on you Mm. know like what is that? <laughs> now we have words. I was queer as fuck. But, like, yeah. at the time, like, it was just sort of, like, a strange thing, you know? I don't know. Or it was treated as strange. Yeah, yeah. And treated as something that was sort of, that made me different from everyone else who was, like, trying to just, like, navigate high school. I don't know. I kind of also realized very early on that because I grew up uh, where I was raised, the school district that I was in, we were, like, sort of the, I don't know, like, class is a funny thing. And, uh, you know, I lived in this bubble, which is situated over here in this bubble, right? Mm-hmm. But, like, here I was here. And so, uh, you know, like, class-wise, we were at the bottom, like, not in the bottom edge of it, but let's say in, like, the second quartile or something of the segment that I was raised with. Okay. And the top half of it were extremely wealthy people from, like, the outlining districts around my school district. So I always felt like we didn't have enough or that my parents, you know, because of their values or whatever, like, would not help me participate in, like, the popularity contest, which mm-hmm. often involves spending a shit ton of money on, like, fashion you know, like that was just not my parents' style. They were like hardworking people that were, they were just like kind of, they didn't buy into those games, but most yeah. of the people that I was raised with did. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of figured out really early on that I was not going to win at that game mm-hmm. and that the way to get through it was to just not give a shit about that game and to be like, fuck all that. And mm-hmm. that is, I guess, who I still am. <laughs> <laughs> that started pretty early. Yeah. 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 Hmm. And so like, the kind of, like, feelings of being different? What were the ways in which, like, those were dealt with or coalesced um, without really having a vocabulary for, like, being queer as fuck? Well, um, I left New York when I when it was time for me to go to college. Okay. There was no question that I, like, 
like going to college was never a question or not. Like that was the path that I was on, you know. Um, and I chose to go to a, I went to McAllister College with Michelle, actually, in a former lifetime for both of us. <laughs> but I chose to like leave New York, leave the East Coast, leave like the Ivy League circuit, leave all of that and go to like an, a, a liberal arts college, but in a city that felt like a good combination for me. Um, but I left. And I remember as soon as I got there, I started making out with everybody, like <laughs> boys, girls, whatever. I started throwing parties that you could probably classify as like sex parties now or like you would see as an early sign of that kind of stuff. They were like make out parties. Okay. We'd like drag our, me and my like gay best friend who I'm still dear with who lives out on the West Coast, like we would like pull our mattresses down and like <laughs> invite all the friends over and like everybody would make out like uh, what yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we were so queer and yeah. I went to all the queer meetings but I didn't I thought that I was straight I had a boyfriend mm-hmm. um like halfway through my first year of school who I really loved for a long time and so I like assumed that I was straight even though I was also making out with girls and sort of mm. kind of open to whatever possibilities life had mm-hmm. for me and it wasn't until but yeah, there was like some real queerness there. Mm. And uh, I don't think it was until after I graduated and moved with my my makeout party friend Tom. <laughs> we moved together to San Francisco that and I like fell hard for an older woman who like haunted my dreams for a long time. And like that was when I was first like, um, I don't think I'm straight. Okay. And that was at about 21, mm-hmm. 22, mm-hmm. 22-ish is when I, like, came out to my parents. And I was like, Mom, Dad, I'm bisexual. And they're like, they're like, what does that mean? That means you have a choice. You should choose men. And I was like, okay, let's start this over. Mom, I'm a lesbian. <laughs> Get over it. I'm a dyke. Uh-huh. They're like, okay. <laughs> they were not happy about that. They tried to convince me for a really long time. And then... Also, like, that was a huge thing for a lot of my early to mid-20s. Definitely, like, the first few years of kind of coming out was, um, am I gay or am I straight? Like, what does it mean? Like, I loved, like, I had a boyfriend who I really loved. And we broke up because of things that happen when you're 20. But, like, um, but there was nothing bad about that relationship. Like, and, you know, uh, it was sort of... I felt like I had to choose. And mm-hmm. if I had to choose one, then I was going to choose women. But uh, I went back and forth, like, why do I have to choose? Am I gay or am I straight? Like, it mm-hmm. was one or the other. It was very, very binary. And I, like, really agonized over that. Mm-hmm. I haven't thought about that in a long time. But it was, like, it really plagued me yeah. that I had to pick. And I remember, and it, like, I was in San Francisco, but I was so wrapped up in this older dyke and her world that I didn't mm-hmm. even, like, go around the corner to the Lexington Club and, like, you, like I just missed things that were happening under my nose. I could have figured my shit out a whole lot sooner mm-hmm. um, if I had just, like, turned left instead of right one day when I, like, got to, to Valencia Street. or You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I just made the decisions that sort of kept me quite a little bit out of view. Mm-hmm. Um and I had and still have, like, a very wonderful group of straight friends who come from college. So, you know, my queerness, I was navigating on my own for a lot of my 20s okay. because my community was very hetero. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't until 
about 2000 five, six-ish or so in Minneapolis, and then 2009-ish, eight or nine here in New York City that I actually, like, found queer people and was like, hmm. oh, <laughs> this is really cool. It was really not until I got, uh, so chronologically speaking, um, yeah, New York to Minnesota for school to San Francisco for a spell, had to like break up with the sugar mama, leave the city in order to like deal yeah, <laughs> with yeah. myself as a 22, 23 year old or something. Okay. Um, moved back to Minnesota, worked on some public art stuff. Um, got a weird insurance settlement from smashing my car and like went around the world for the better part of a year. Traveled around, was like really into photography, mm-hmm. trying to be a photographer, trying to learn things about people and how people work. Yeah. Um, started like by college I picked up a camera and started interning at this photo gallery in Minneapolis and sort of fell into like community art not fell into it but Mm -hmm. like walked into that world and started learning about and thinking about like the the overlap between being an artist and community organizing and and social movements as well it was like those themes just continue throughout my life yeah um yeah, because of, like, very formative stuff from when I was younger. Um, but, yeah, the minute I picked up a camera, I knew I was a photographer. Mm-hmm. That was when I was 20. Mm-hmm. And then it became, like, a passport almost for entering a lot of different social universes than what I was raised in. Because also I was raised in this bubble. Like I said, I went to sample five days a week for my entire young life until I was old enough and, like, badass enough because of my heavy metal (laughs) to be like fuck you i'm not going to hebrew school anymore like Mm -hmm. i don't want to go to temple on friday nights like i want to hang out with my friends instead Mm -hmm. they still made me see the rabbi once a week but like Mm -hmm. i got more of a pass for later in high school to kind of do my own thing and then when my my like older brother uh went off to college then i had the house to myself after school for a couple of years and that was when I feel like I sort of came into myself a little bit more because mm-hmm. I was no and they're living with this threat yeah uh and reacting to it and that was when I started getting more into like ideas of philosophy and movement stuff um kind of understanding that the world was bigger than the one that I was raised in mm-hmm. and that was also when I started like cutting school and taking trains into the city mm. and being like, someday New York, <laughs> someday I will live in you. And, yeah. You know, the Empire State Building is one block away from where, from Penn Station, where the Long Island Railroad lets you out. So yeah. I would cut school. I would take the train in by myself. I would like buy the ticket and go up to the top of the Empire State Building <laughs> and just like stare at the city for hours. And so, wow. um, here we are now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Imagine this life, which I could never have imagined, you know. Mm-hmm. But I knew that something more was out there. And when I started taking pictures, it was a way for me to, like, enter a lot of different people's lives. I had a photography mentor in, uh, kind of immediately after college who – his name is Wing Young Huey. We're still close. He's amazing. And he uh, is a documentary photographer who went – uh, spent years in a dozen different neighborhoods connected by one street called Lake Street of Minneapolis. Okay. And it was, it's like the most diverse corridor in the city. 
And so I would just like meet up with him and we'd go wandering around into like lots of people's homes and we'd talk to different people and it was just very eye-opening for me. We'd go to like, you know, a Hmong church or a native healing center or, uh, you know, we'd go hang out with a black family. Um, Just like not what I was raised with at all. And I liked it and I loved all the people that I met and I loved understanding that the world was a bigger place than like this very narrow thing that I could never live up to Mm. because I was always so different and I didn't want what the other people wanted I needed to like get the fuck out of there you know which I think is the thing that a lot of queer people can relate to (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. um yeah so after so I worked with that photographer on a really big project for a couple of years and you know, like I said, he had gone into like a really, like just a incredibly diverse range of human beings, like is who he connected with for a number of years. And it helped him mount a huge public art exhibition of that. It was like six miles long. It was like almost a thousand photographs. We like wow. put them all on the streets. Mm-hmm. I was like running up and down and like, I knew every single business owner on the entire block. Like we put pictures in, in windows and like 150 stores up and down this block it was like a massive public art exhibition in fact that was when i first encountered andrea jenkins who is now the first uh black trans woman elected official in america or Mm -hmm. something she's on the minneapolis city council as of this fall and she was i remember meeting her and being like there's something interesting about that woman (laughs) you know and i didn't know Mm -hmm. um but i remember being drawn to her then but you know you don't you're like we are who we are but uh even before there's language for it um yeah so i don't know there's a whole like trajectory like i spent most of my 20s trying to be a dyke and sort of failing at it and feeling like something was wrong (laughs) and uh got really involved in movement stuff like when i finished the project in minneapolis I hit the road and traveled, like, the car accident thing happened, and I, like, got the money to travel the world for more or less a year, Mm -hmm. and spent a lot of time in Bangladesh, in India, Nepal, I went to Southeast Asia, I met a lot of people, I met a lot of photographers, I took a lot of pictures, Mm -hmm. I had some really deep experiences in Bangladesh, um, because I just sort of fell into a very group, amazing group of people there, um, some of whom I'd still am in touch with um and sort of gave me a different perspective too like you know I felt like after working on the Lake Street project in Minneapolis that I had some sense of like um class race and uh experience perspective in the United States like I understood our context here a little bit better and I wanted to try to have the same kind of understanding globally I guess and so it was I was 24 and there was something about like spending time in Bangladesh and the places that my friends took me to and what I learned I traveled on my own for a while I didn't speak for four months I just like wrote in my journal every day it was like Hmm. really um because I was in places where I didn't really speak the language very much but I still connected with people and um came back to New York um 9-11 hit so this is 2001. Yeah. Um, 
I had to get a job. <laughs> the money ran out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and at, that was the moment that I got hired by the Open Society Foundations and to work on a project that was supporting the Burmese democracy movement. Because okay. Burma was at the time, and they still are, really being run by a military junta that had taken over in the 60s and it was very 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 repressed there and again like that theme of like social movements and sort of i don't know and i just come back from that part of the world and i had like a real affinity for it and uh yeah so i spent two years as a assistant in uh supporting the Burmese democracy movement mm-hmm. out of the Open Society Foundations, which I don't know if you know anything about it, but it's, uh, you've heard of George Soros? He's like the most progressive zillionaire oh. out there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he's like number 30 or 30 something in terms of like wealth in the world. He's mm-hmm. extremely hated by Trump and Trump people. They like single him out. He's like, uh, like the Jew and they're always like hmm. he was a Holocaust survivor also who was also like a hedge fund dude and a speculator who kind of fucked up the Asian markets at some point and like uh-huh. has done like you know yeah. like nobody gets that rich by, by being nice to everyone they've ever met Yeah. Um, but has definitely like a really unique he's kind of a really high class pirate hmm. in some ways because he's all about like trying to get as much money as possible and then funneling it into different like sex worker movements and, and trans movements around the world and a lot of democracy stuff, a lot of like free media, mm-hmm. um, um, civil society, public health issues, HIV, um, justice, deep justice stuff, truth and reconciliation processes, like, um, yeah, they've done some good stuff in the world, and it was a really interesting place to land at 24 and try to understand, mm-hmm. like, how the world works and how movements work. Because yeah. also when you're sitting in the seat of being a funder, um, you're approached by everybody out there. And, mm-hmm. like, I got to sort of understand all of the different pieces that make a movement mm-hmm. up. So, like, you know, for in the Burmese democracy movement, we had to be, like, supporting people who were, like, the refugees in... Thailand, and we had to be supporting like uh, Aung San Suu Kyi individually, and the government in exile who were stuck in Washington. But we also had to like hire a really high end lobbyist who was going to work Congress for us. Yeah. We had to uh, figure out secret ways of funneling money inside the country where everything was shut down to like actually like provide support for people. Mm. You had to think about healthcare, but you also had to think about justice and the newspaper that they need, or like the radio program that people are going to get information from. So it was really interesting to like understand all of the different pieces that make up something. Yeah. And it gave me this perspective. And then also working at a place that is, you know, the Open Society Foundations is one of the biggest foundations in the world. Mm -hmm. And it operates in like, I don't know, like over a hundred countries. It's all over the place. And so also understanding like how big the world was and, it, it just it, it's given me a really interesting perspective that I've carried for a long time mm-hmm. and uh, set up a lot of things in motion because um, I lasted about two years at that job. I'm not really cut out to be an administrator <laughs> <laughs> like of a foundation program and I love the Burmese people, but I wanted to like 
uh, do something that felt more immediate mm. and like administering stuff that's happening half a world away is just like a little disconnected. So I wanted to feel more connected. Yeah. Um, and towards the end that my, um, I had gotten myself into like a really fucked up relationship with a coworker who was so hot. Oh my God, <laughs> she was such a babe. <laughs> <laughs> But we were in our 20s. We didn't know the things. And we were like, did not treat each other as well as we could have. And our breakup was really devastating. And I was having another like, I got to get out of here moment. And like, uh, left. Again, I got a call to from the photographer I had worked with in Minneapolis. And he was like, supposed to do this gig, you should take my gig. It's on the it's, you know, you got to like, it's the immigrant workers freedom ride, Hmm. which was a about two years after 9-11 hit, where the immigrant rights movement was at, was they were uh, having to deal with, like, you know, people have been pushing for immigration reform since yeah. Clinton passed bad laws, but Clinton passed bad laws because there was other things that they were trying to think. But there was a massive change in it that sort of coincided with NAFTA and a bunch of bad policies in the 90s that started to cause, like, the the way that we understand undocumented immigration now. Mm-hmm. Um and particularly from Mexico and Latin America and all of that. Um, And they were really trying to get immigration reform passed for a long time, and then 9-11 hit, and suddenly the debate about immigration became about homeland security Mm. and terrorists and people from the Middle East and, like, the ways that that dialogue was so perverted and fucked up by by our government at the time. Um, And so everything got stalled. And a couple of years after that, it was 2003, it was the fall of 2003, and the labor movement and some other um, people who care about immigrants groups decided it was time to like reframe the dialogue around that. So they organized a massive national thing called the Immigrant Workers Freedom Ride. 10 or 12 different cities like sent caravans of buses simultaneously to Washington, but made hundreds of stops along the way together. And everywhere you stopped, there was like a big gathering and a rally and the local community would host the bus so uh freedom riders came from all around the country and i was on the minnesota buses like i flew i took a couple weeks of off of my job in new york and i flew to minnesota i got on the bus and i rode the bus all the way to washington and back to new york city with them and it completely changed my life um because again it was in this moment where i was starting to feel really trapped in a job that felt distant i felt like i wasn't helping enough or like it just didn't feel immediate enough um and uh yeah but you know immigrants were all around me and how was I not aware of like how fucked up things were and like I needed to do something plus I had just like spent nine days on a bus with 90 immigrants from around the state of Minnesota and who came from around the world and like really connected with this group of people we had this really like deep experience together so I quit my job when I got back from that and I moved back to Minnesota for the third time or something (laughs) like that and like someone gave me a station wagon and like I drove it across the country and like sort of started uh fell really really deep into the immigrant rights movement in Minnesota Mm -hmm. and which was not uh cohesive in any way whatsoever it wasn't it wasn't even a thing and so we were the people but we were like this group of activists that had just had this experience together Mm. and um we made shit happen 
like we somebody was like oh we should do something about the you know there's this the dream act like the whole movement that we're in now was not a thing then um and when i got there in 2013 there were four undocumented kids in the entire state of minnesota that were in college and we knew all four of them and by the time i left three years later we had there were hundreds because it was just we just we were in that moment where no one was talking about it and we like someone put a bug in our ear and then we made it happen. Um, and I started doing these like big public art projects and like all of the, I was photographing the immigrants that I was friends with, but then like we were doing these exhibitions and I was putting them on buses and trucks and we drove around the state. We organized a freedom ride across the state of Minnesota. Hmm. Um, we're going to, we organized the next summer. We like took a truck around and we went to 30 County fairs and we like talked about immigration and we talked about the dream act and we really, we worked really hard with like local high school students. We started clubs in 20 something different high schools. We were working with um, not just undocumented young people, but like Chicana people and then their friends, you know, like <laughs> in college, they were the one, like they were managing this, all of these, uh, they were the ones going into the high school. So we just, you know, thousands of young people would show up like by the our second year for our lobby days and things like that and we we like passed policies in the state of minnesota we traveled around a lot and and tried to link up conversations that were happening in different communities we built a statewide network of for that was supportive of immigrant rights i used to like facilitate a coalition that like faith labor and community groups that sort of was working together when I left in 2006, there was this massive wave of immigrant rights things that were happening around the country because they finally started talking about it. Bush was like, oh, let's change it. Um, and, you know, there was a million people in Chicago and a million people in L.A. and like seven zillion people in New York City. But we had 40,000 in Minneapolis and we were pretty proud of that. Yeah. Um, so that was like my Saturn Returns. <laughs> <laughs> was like working really hard on that shit. And somewhere in the middle of there, a queer person crossed my path. Like there was a set of like a friend of mine that I met was in a band called Gay Beast. They were amazing. And I started going to Gay Beast parties and being like, who are these funny people? These people are amazing. (laughs) And they're like, let's fuck up pride. And I was like, yeah, let's fuck up pride. So we were the revolting queers, which is in Minneapolis is like a little is, is like a nugget of queer history there because it's sort of the revolting queers were a thing and then they turned into like, then they got a space and then that space turned into a thing. Mm. And then that there's just, it, there were it, like things were so formative then, yeah. or at least that's what it felt like. But I know that it's not even what it felt like. It is true. Like yeah. things were formative then. <laughs> and now there is a huge scene. And <laughs> like, those are some of the roots of it was like us carrying coffins of like, you know, people slain by the state through like pride in 2006, you know? Mm. Um, so it was like this little nugget, like there's this other, like, Ooh, who are these radical queer people? I like them, mm-hmm. but I had to go and come back to New York. Sorry. No and, uh, because I was so like the co-director of an immigrant rights organization in Minnesota, but I'm a New Yorker and like, mm-hmm. I loved it there, but I, I wanted to come home. Yeah. And also I was doing all this community organizing, but I was a photographer and I like couldn't carve out enough space to do my art amidst yeah. like the political neces- urgency of everything. But everything that I had learned in working on the Burmese democracy movement 
immediately got filtered into like helping sculpt and build a movement in Minnesota. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of, I mean, just there's still reverberations of the work that we did then. Like my intern is on the city council now (laughs) and like, and you know, the first thing she did was change Columbus day to indigenous people's Mm -hmm. day. Like, like there's some cool shit that's happening as a result of, of the work that we did there. And uh, yeah. And I learned a lot from Mm -hmm. that. So when I came back to New York um, to go to grad school and, like, be a better photographer, except that I kind of stopped taking pictures and started, like, (laughs) writing a lot instead, Mm. Um, when I got back and – so grad school happened. I put myself in a bubble. I didn't – I was kind of burnt out. I just needed to, like, focus for a little bit. But when I emerged from that, I uh, joined the board of – Jews for Racial and Economic Justice. And Jay Fridge is where I met the queers. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, because Jay Fridge were the Jews who were working on immigrant rights stuff, I was like, okay, this is where I belong. Yeah, you will be my community work. I get it. That's fine. And that was when I started falling into like, that was when I met Daniel Rosa and Ariel and like people who thought of themselves as gender fuckers. Mm. And immediately I was like, I have found my people. Mm. And immediately, all of these experiences that I'd had along the way and of um, thinking about things like movements and thinking about how cultural work contributes to a movement and how you can be strategic about cultural work in terms of, like, who are you reaching? Who are you talking to? Whereas, you know, I was never the kind of artist that wanted to be in a museum. Like, Mm. it's just not really, or like a gallery. I don't care about that stuff. Like, I just, it's just not, it's not how I operate. But... But cultural work that is movement-based is what I care about. Mm -hmm. And it was really clear to me. I felt like I could see things. Like, I should send you something that I wrote in 2011 or so when I was trying to convince um, Open Society to have a trans program Hmm. before that was a thing that they even cared about. Like, Or they cared about it on a global level, but they thought the U.S., everybody was fine. Mm -hmm. And I was like, no, there's something happening here. Like, it was, uh, I realized, like, there was no institutional support for it that I was connected with, at least. I felt like um, I was just going to kind of do the work on my own. Yeah. And that brings us to this piece of paper. Yes. So you brought a (laughs) decent-sized piece of paper, I would say about, like, 24 inches square. Um. It's kind of, it has, so I'm just going to describe it so the people listening yep. have an image to conjure up. Um, so it has every year from 2010 to 2016 written on a kind of, what is this? Like a, This was the tablecloth okay. at the Ethiopian place we went to <laughs> after Brain Kelly's memorial service in okay. January 2016, maybe February, but it was early. Okay. And so it has these, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> has these years written kind of like diagonally across the paper. Um, and yeah, just lists of kind of like queer history. I'm presuming mostly in New York. Yeah. Since all of it. Between those years, yeah. Yeah. So do you want to start getting to this or is there anything you want to mention before we start talking about? this piece of paper (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what to say I think um 
Yeah. All of that was the like, and then I met the queers. But yeah. <laughs> there's like the before and the after, and this is mm. the after, but now the after feels like a before because the before started for me really like this this tracks us from two thousand ten, mm-hmm. which was the year that I photographed our community or my community because I don't know who's listening to this, yeah. but like um yeah, so but, but like maybe it started 2008 is when okay. I was like really started getting involved in stuff. Mm-hmm. 2010 was when I started organizing things. Okay. And uh, thinking a lot about um, networks of people because networks are, are the basis of power. Like, you know, and all just like. When I came up, I became politicized and I learned about community organizing with black and brown people who were poor immigrants mm-hmm. in Minnesota, in the Midwest. And like really deeply like uh, it was that it just shaped how I think about things and the, you know, probably like a little bit of Linsky model. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, building power is building like networks of power are built on people. Mm-hmm. And um, meeting people where they're at, which for queer people is in dance clubs, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. and gay bars and like secret spaces where people come together. Um, yeah. So I don't know. There's yeah, there's a big trajectory of queer history here. Mm-hmm. Um, New York City, radical queer history uh, of one spoke of like a much larger wheel. Yeah. Um, this is one wedge of it. Mm. Um, but I think that has had like some pretty strong cultural influence. Plus like, um, I remember when I was like, you know, early anti-racism trainings and shit like that. Um, thinking about a lot about structural racism and thinking a lot about like the history and cultural pieces of it, like history, language, culture as, you know, places where, racism is embedded right and you can't really shift that stuff until you you can't you have to shift culture in order to address some of this it's interesting what we're living through Mm -hmm. now on a larger scale like i feel like i wrote a whole piece about it that's going to be in mcsweeney's next year Mm. but um about transitions and um you know it feels really messy right now and it feels so horrible, but actually we're just like unearthing the trauma. Yeah. And this is a really good part of the process, you mm-hmm. know, like you got to get the shit out. We have to be having the right conversations mm-hmm. in order to be able to address what's really wrong, Yeah, which, you know, starts in 1492 and continues to now. Right. Yeah. And all of the layers of things that have happened along the way. And I'm really grateful to be living through what we are now because people are talking about that shit. Mm-hmm. When we were, when it was 2000, three or 2005 and I've been like in a white state like trying to talk to people about race and how like race is a factor in how people Mm. feel about the brown and black immigrants that are coming to their state like no one was able to even have that kind of a conversation Mm. and you know like that we needed to be talking about that they still needed to talk about that (laughs) there you know but now that's a conversation that people are having and mm. trying to put that on the map was just like shocking to people then. Mm. Um, yeah. And I think about this stuff. I mean, like, I don't know. I don't know how to get into this because it's so much. Mm-hmm. 
Um, maybe you should ask me questions and that'll help. Yeah, yeah. So I guess you mentioned, so just to get kind of like a timeline preceding this timeline. So you go to grad school. Yeah. Right? Where was that? Um, at the International Center of Photography. Oh, not so far from here. No, okay. like right across the street. Okay, yeah. okay. Um, so you do that and you mentioned that like that's where you, you kind of are in your own space. Right. Then. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then I was like wrestling with photography. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in a really like, like, and the history of documentary and what that means and how mm. fucked up that was. And that was when I was like, I am not a documentary photographer anymore. I never, mm. like, I don't know, all of, you know, objectivity and subjectivity. And then, but also, like, who am I as an artist? Also, the head of my program is Naylan Blake, who is this extremely queer artist who oh, yeah. is like, you're not a photographer, you're an artist. Like that was lesson one for all of us, right? Mm. And that we could use whatever tools we wanted to, they all counted, Mm. everything mattered. It wasn't just about the thing that we did right here. It was, you know. Um, So I stopped taking pictures for a while and I like started making crafty shit and like (laughs) recycling trash into weird sculptures and like, I don't know, you know, like just trying a lot of different things. So it was a really, and my heart hurt a lot. Like I had had in Minnesota, like my three full years, like where I probably did not ever take more than like 24 hours off. Yeah. Um, carrying along with my, like my like partnering crime and all of that. Like we, we, we carried a really heavy weight for a while and it worked and it was amazing, but it was like a lot. And also like, being deeply politicized, being, like, deeply engaged in, like, the actual lives of brown and black people, um, taking our lives together collectively, like, on the road. Like, that summer that we went to, we went to, like, 30 county fairs, right? (laughs) Because we wanted to be in the places where people were at. We didn't want to try to, like, be like, oh, come to this event. It was like, no. We need to go where they're at in order to have the, and bring this conversation there. And people wouldn't talk to us because we were this group of brown and black people plus me, right? Um, And our intern and or our volunteers or whatever. It was just fucked up. So I was really processing a lot of that Mm -hmm. and taking space and just kind of putting a lot of things together in my head. And I can see that as sort of a thing that happens to me over time. Like, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there are holes that come up in this timeline too where like I – once I got a van, like start vanishing in the van for like months at a time sometimes to just like try to figure out what the fuck is going on in my head. Um, and so at halfway through that, I started um, in my several years away from the Open Society Foundations. They had gone and started a documentary photography project okay. where they were supporting photographers who were documenting social justice, human rights issues all around the world, mm-hmm. all of the issues that the foundation cares about. So... I wound up getting a internship or part like work uh, for them halfway through grad school, and then I just sort of continued. And when I got out of school, they gave me a job. Okay. So I started producing exhibitions um, and thinking of grant programs and figure and like meeting with a ton of photographers and looking at a lot. Like that became my job for the next few years and it felt really clean and contained for me it was like a place where I could continue wrestling with the idea of documentary like I wanted documentary to die Mm. 
And I almost took that job to kill it, you mm. know, and to, but because I was being invited into the conversation about it, you know, yeah. and that was a good place to be. Mm. And also it was like a job that gave me a salary that I did not have to fundraise for myself that mm. were like, I showed up at 10 and I left at six and the rest of my life was my own. Mm. And I wasn't trying to make money off of my art, which I felt really deeply conflicted about. Um, it gave me a lot of space to actually like go play with queer people all the time. In fact, that is sort of what happened because I don't know, that was, it coincided. So I was like, oh yeah, and I can take this board position for J Fridge and mm-hmm. like met all these gender fuckers and started going to queer dance parties and being like, what is this world? <laughs> I love seeing people go through that transition now where they like have been living their lives and stressing about things and then you take them to like a queer party and they're like, what? Mm-hmm. And then you start introducing people to people and they realize like it's a whole community of people mm-hmm. and like there is a place for them in it. And like, you know, they've always wanted to dance and here's this like radical dance troupe, like go for it. You mm-hmm. found your people go, you know, and I, that was my moment was like 2008, 2009 mm-hmm. with, um, the people who are now known as the Afsalakis Spectacle Committee, the people who put together the Purim Spiel every year, okay. which is like a very large, like, uh, community art endeavor that creates a theatrical spectacle mm-hmm. every spring, winter, spring. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I don't know. Yeah. Queers. And then I was like, oh. And, you know, so I was sort of showing up for my job every day, but, like, things were getting weirder and weirder at night. Mm. And then a couple of years into it, I realized that, like, and meanwhile, I'm reviewing portfolios for the exhibition that I was coordinating at um, an open society, and people would invariably send in images of transgender people mm. from brothels, from Brazil to Bangladesh, mm. and like really exploitative kind of bullshit stuff, mm-hmm. or really just one-dimensional portrayals. And so it's like, reject, 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 mm. reject. Oh, by the way, you guys, I'm trans. Okay. <laughs> like, and they're like, yeah, we kind of figured. <laughs> okay. So I was the first out trans person in the Open Society Foundations, okay. like, uh, which has a thousand people who were working around the world. That was like sort of landmark at that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and eventually I went on to start the queer salon there with a couple of friends. Mm-hmm. There were three or four of us that started that together. And then kind of organize that. I, you know, I'm like the kind of person who, when people are like, oh, we should do this thing. I'm like, okay, cool. And then I send an email out to the people the next day. And I'm like, let's do it. Yeah. What do you yeah. need? And like, <laughs> that's just my personality. Like when I started doing the organizing work in Minnesota, I didn't even know what it meant to be a community organizer. And they're like, you just need to do what you do. Mm. We'll give you some better language for it. It's kind of like with the queers too. They're like, you, yeah. you just do what you do. Here's the language for what you're already doing. Mm. Um, yeah, and so I guess I, like, am a weird, like, because I have this training as a community organizer, but it's not totally what I do, but it's just kind of who I am. Yeah. yeah. Um, and crossed with, like, learning how to curate group exhibitions and, like, on a higher level mm-hmm. at my at my open society job and, like, making these really fancy photo exhibitions of, like, really disturbing imagery and shit like that and sometimes empowering and uplifting and getting angry and having these like debates about documentary and like what does photography mean and somewhere in there I sort of looked around and I was like my people are beautiful like no one is photographing us in the way that I see it and 
for the first time since I left the state of Minnesota, I like picked up my camera and it wasn't for a grad school assignment. It was like, I wanted to, like, I felt like my people were beautiful. There was a performance that a friend of mine that I met through Jay Fridge did. Um, their name is uh, uh, Ezra Berkeley Dupon now, or Killer. I call them Killer. So Killer made this show, and it was called Between Two Worlds. We loved you before you were mine. Bryn Kelly was in it. Rosa was in it. My friend Zachary was in it. Um, there, are, it was it was a really beautiful uh, theatrical kind of like meditation on like the people like have we whose souls are we inheriting like reflecting on like the AIDS crisis but then also just like it's just beautiful and you know it's in the warehouse in the middle of the night in the middle of winter and I'm looking at my friends on stage and I'm like ah so that was when I started taking pictures and it was like the full year of 2010 I took a fuck ton of pictures Mm -hmm. and every weekend I would go out and they're the ones that look kind of like this you know they're black and white night I won the RMO <laughs> yeah <laughs> so this is some of them that's me um, yeah so these are from different events they're different people um, you know like us out in front of the club mm-hmm. <laughs> you know hey queen was a thing mm-hmm. we all went to this is a party at the castle where bunch of drag queens that sort of predated Bushwig. Okay. Um, yeah, that was like in the Pride Parade. That's Ariel Speedwagon, <laughs> a bunch of other friends. Uh, Christy Road, who draws a bunch of stuff and is in a bunch of kind of bands. She's super rad. Mm-hmm. So what are the kind of like, just in terms of like a kind of historical, like what are the kind of historical parameters around this? Like locations, years? Um, Brooklyn. Okay. Really Brooklyn centric. Okay. Uh, 2010. Like those are the dirty bathrooms at Sugarland. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of Sugarland. Okay. Because it was where Hey Queen was, but then a bunch of other little parties would happen along the way too. Rebel Cupcake started around then. It's Princess Tiny and the Meat. Said Silas Howard. Mm-hmm. No. Yeah, that's Silas, mm-hmm. who is now like directing things in yeah. Hollywood. Hey, <laughs> it was in Tribe Eight and was super rad. Oh, Dixon plays. Yeah. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. And Heather Odge. Who's that? That's probably Noga. Mm-hmm. Oh, we That might even be Bryn. We're looking at a stack of photographs that Keto brought over. They're all black and white photographs that they've taken of the community at the time. I'll send you. I'll send you images. Okay. Yeah, that was after a show. That's Bevan Brown Landing. Ham was started mm-hmm. Cupcake. Um, yeah, fire escape at a party. <laughs> so, like, what is it like to re- reflect on these images, like, right now? You know, I've been thinking a lot about accountability mm. and about community. And, um, it's interesting to see the relationships that have changed mm. within them. Mm-hmm. And I feel like we're looking at these beautiful days of youth yeah. in a way where like everything felt so fresh and wonderful and magic, just full of magic. And then you learn eventually that like, you know, 
some of these people are not accountable for some of the bullshit that they bring to the world. Mm-hmm. And what do you do about that? What do you do when those people then like move on to adjacent circles of people or like, you know, this is the moment where we were all connected with each other, but everybody keeps moving. Right. And when we talk about queer community, what does that even mean? You know, like, and, um, yeah, I see a little bit of carnage in the pictures. Mm. When I took them, I felt like I was like, like, like putting messages in a bottle for the future Mm. or that, um, Yeah, they didn't look like anything I'd ever shot before. It was just sort of like, you know, that. That's one of my favorites, you know. And, you know, there's a couple that is broken up in there. That was really devastating. Like, here we are having this beautiful thing, but that person was being super abusive to that person behind the scenes, and we weren't really talking about that, you know. And yet, like, what a beautiful photograph, yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know? And, like, and it felt that way, you know? It, it felt like we were living this magical life. We were. We still are. I mean, life is a magical thing, right? Um, I also think about how underground it felt and how secret it was and how, um, you know, Like, I feel like there are certain sets of people and legacies that I participate in, you Mm -hmm. know, like the legacy laid by the Mix Festival or by ACT UP. Mm -hmm. Um, Jews for Racial and Economic Justice has been around for 34 years by this point. Um, uh, What other legacies? Eventually, the legacies start to overlap with uh, people who knew Sylvia Rivera, like my collective that I'm a part of now, like is part of her lineage. Cause I met a lot of people through Sylvia's place. So like we are the connector connector of other things, mm-hmm. you know, the downtown performance kinds of legacies. There's a little bit of the Bushwig thing or not Bushwig, mm-hmm. wig stuff, like, you know, drag, drag mm-hmm. legacies. I go back to flawless Sabrina. Like one of my, my dear ones has flawless's last name, you know, mm-hmm. Um, was very close to her, started from the 70s. Like, it's, you know, Jack and Peter who have this garden downtown, Le Petit Versailles, and have been doing amazing things forever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it's all these different legacies that other people have built mm-hmm. that we were the ones in 2010 who followed that. And who is the we? I don't even know. It's so broad. Yeah, yeah. Um, if you show up to a party once, are you part of the we? Yeah, you kind of are, yeah. right? And how many hundreds and thousands of people is that? And how many of those people, you know, how did those connections turn into um, where we are now? Like, I think about them, period. Like the Condé Nast <laughs> publication, right? Yeah. Which yeah. is like pumping some pretty cool queer thought into like, a mass cultural audience, right? Yeah. And where are those ideas coming from? Like, it's all this kind of, you know, we were doing this shit when it yeah. was like, when we were the ones, that was it. But we weren't only ever the ones. Like, sometimes it feels that way, and I work really hard to not be like, yeah. it was us. It wasn't <laughs> us. We were a part of it. It was us, and it wasn't. Like, there's the movement thinking again, you mm-hmm. know? Um, each of us, like, like, when you think about movements, you think about the collection of, millions of different thoughts, ideas, actions, behaviors, actions, actions, you know, um, that all come together towards a somewhat common vision, right? Um, 
And there are so many of us. Like part of what's beautiful about the last few years is realizing how many different pockets of this were happening underground. And that um, because another thing that's happening across this timeline that we're looking at that stretches from 2010 to 2016 is Facebook. Before Facebook was MySpace, right? Before MySpace was LiveJournal. Um, there are plans before LiveJournal, there were AOL chat rooms. But before that, there was silence. Yeah. Right. So like the, the rise of the Internet and particularly Facebook, like I think I feel like this is a documentation in some ways of the Facebook era okay. or the Facebook queer era. Like there are pictures here of people who like help start the queer exchange or like mm. we were the ones. Right. Yeah. We were just on there doing the things and being like, oh, boom, let's start a group. OK, boom. That's a good idea. Let's do that. And now it is amazing how many people are DIYing so much shit, you know. <laughs> Yeah. But I compare that to like growing up, like coming of age in the 90s, where I didn't even know that like that Riot Girl was a thing, yeah. you know, but it was happening right in front of me. Like Facebook would have fixed that in four seconds. Mm. And, um, you know, as a photographer during this year, that was close with the people who were putting the parties together and with the artists and the personalities and because it wasn't hard to be close with people because we were the ones, you know, like, uh, you know, but it was a way also of like becoming known in that community, I guess, you know, like I tag people in pictures. Like that was a new thing that had, that was not a part of my space was tagging people in pictures. So that, um, you know, I was a community photographer, I guess. And like, I met a lot of people that way. And um, all of this whole trajectory really started from, I guess it was The Artist is Absent, like my, my kind of role as a cultural producer slash community organizer slash no one, I can't really, there's not really a good word yeah. for who I am and what I do. It's, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know, I'm just like a person doing what I do in the world <laughs> and that's it. Um, but The Artist is Absent, so Rosa... Daniel, who you should interview for this if you haven't yet. Because she's, she's got a lot of stories for you um, that go back way longer than mine. And we somehow met when we were in our early 20s and then didn't see each other for a long time. And, like, yeah, again, like, the information you get and the information you don't. <laughs> like, it yeah. just it sculpts your experience. So she had – there was a Marina Abramovich exhibition at the MoMA – there were a couple of queer performers in it, but there was, like, a lot of feelings that they weren't, like, they were, like, institutionalizing and caging this very bold work, and they're re-performing these things, but they're not letting people push it to their boundaries, and that, you know, we were a part of, like, BDSM circles and queer circles and, like, different kinds of bodies and, like, you know, these perfect model bodies that were doing it for the MoMA. You know, we needed to DIY this, and we needed to do it our own way. Hmm. And, um... I happened to have some friends that had, like, a space that was on Central Park West and 62nd Street, like, this <laughs> giant gallery space that we could borrow for a couple hundred bucks. <laughs> so we're like, okay, let's do a day. Let's let's restage 17 of her performances and re-perform them, but on, like, fat bodies, queer bodies, like, diverse bodies, like, and, BDS- and people from the BDSM scene who are going to really, like, push the boundaries of Marina's work. So we did that, like a thousand people showed up. We had like 50 performers. I met a ton of people, like we like pulled that together pretty fast. 
And uh, it was Rosa, Ariel Speedwagon, and I, like, co-curated that and just sort of made it happen. Mm -hmm. Um, And then organizing group shows became a thing that I did after that. Mm -hmm. So a few months later, like, you know, I've been taking all these pictures and I wanted to, like, figure something out and, like, figure out, like, were they, you know, like, get them as prints, like, do something with them. I didn't know what. So I called um, a few other people who were also photographers and, like, like come over like come over like let's maybe we should do a photo show we could do it in somebody's living room it's no big deal like whatever but let's do a show so that we have a deadline and we'll like get shit done and we'll have a cute party and you know like a queer thing right yeah yeah and somewhere in that time like someone introduced me to a person who at shashama which like rents out gives away big spaces to artists to do things in and i was like and I, so I met with this person, it was a friend of a friend, and I was like, oh, yeah, well, you know, my friends and I were, like, talking about doing this photography thing or an art show of some sort. With, and he's like, cool, and gave us this gigantic, empty gallery space in Chelsea for three wow. weeks. So I was like, okay, called a bunch of people. Um, we're like, now we have a huge space. Like, who else wants to do shit? And so we threw this show, and it was called Into the Neon. That was January 2011. And, like, 400 queer people showed up in the middle of a blizzard, and, like, there were 12, 12 to 15 artists in it. It was a really cool show, but also, like, yeah, uh, a microcosm for certain debates within queer art circles, <laughs> you know? Okay. Like, some people are more gallery-oriented, and some people are more, like, let's just hang out and have parties in it and that doesn't know and both perspectives are totally fair yeah um but that was a thing i remember going to nayland afterwards and being like nayland what happened he's like oh welcome to being queer in the art world (laughs) (laughs) you will be dealing with this for the rest of your life Hmm. okay so it just grew you know and that turned into we started a collective called the department of transformation we uh, put on a bunch of, God, there's so much stuff in here. I almost like jumping ahead mm-hmm. because there, but because Queer House Field Day was a really big deal. Okay. And Queer House Field Day was us uh, organizing people to come, who like knew each other through dance party spaces and nighttime spaces coming together on an afternoon in Prospect Park to have like field day Mm -hmm. (laughs) and you like could have a team and so people showed up with their crew and everybody was like dressed for it (laughs) playing like stupid field games that were really hilarious and like Mm -hmm. you know with an mc and all of that it was amazing and so a couple hundred people showed up and were like wow check that out there's a bunch of us we didn't know that that's really cool look how many of us we are and like how fucking cute we are in the light you know yeah and so that turned into something called quorum forum which was in that winter where it was uh, a couple weeks of people hosting like cute things and workshops and skill shares and stuff in their living rooms, but it was like hosted by the queer houses. So, uh, you know, you're going to like a consent workshop in one place or like a fisting demo in somebody else's like kitchen, Mm -hmm. you know, the castle had a drag party. People put on drag for the first time, like, or like, you know, that was really amazing too. And so that built up, they did another field day that second year, that was 2011. Mm -hmm. And that time, like I think over 600 people showed up for it. And uh, 
and there were so many more of us, mm-hmm. you know, and everybody was still a whole lot cuter in the light than they were at night, or they're cute both ways, you yeah, know. Yeah. But there were like a lot of we're just like, wow, that's cool. <laughs> okay, what's next? So then they organized another quorum forum, but it sort of um, that next winter, but it fell apart because that was when people started arguing a lot. That no started. That was when that thread reared its head in in this circle of people of like trying to come up with like language about safe spaces and who belongs in a place and like I don't know it felt like there was just a lot of like I stayed out of the organizing of the quorum forums because it was just like it just like very very processy meetings <laughs> and not a lot of like and so it sort of that kind of crashed and burned a little bit. And that was the end of Quorum Forum. But there was this moment where that was like a big thing um, <coughs> that was bringing people together who were coming from different walks and different circles of people and sort of not just understanding that you're part of something bigger, but like actually seeing it, Yeah, you know, in a way that like you could say that Pride, well, Pride, ugh, fuck Pride, <laughs> yeah. you could say that like the drag march or the dyke march or the trans day of action are sets of people who there you are, you're like suddenly visible and there, and there's everybody around you. Um, maybe this was it for the cultural community or a cultural community or one spoke of a much larger cultural <laughs> community wheel, you know, it's like we are a set of people who knows what kind of damage still we're going to do to this planet in a good way. Mm-hmm. Not damage. That's the wrong word, but like, yeah. Um, yeah. So things just continue to evolve. Mm. I got my first van in 2011. I lost my house. This is when I remembered childhood shit and sort of okay. fell into a turbulence, a hole of turbulence and became transient and lived out of my van for a couple of years, mm-hmm. left my job at, left my job full-time at the foundation mm-hmm. started consulting for them in like tiny bits so i'd like do a gig pocket some money get in the van and leave again mm-hmm. um helped start a couple of queer houses during this time um abandoned all things <laughs> just kept like running away in my van started spending more time in places like Tennessee and Vermont radical fairy sanctuaries okay met the fairies like uh west coast I've been to like all of the fairy sanctuaries (laughs) by this point I spend a lot of time like outside of the city when I can um yeah yeah it was this this set of time I went to Berlin for a while um things were still happening here quite a bit um Things were very turbulent for me personally during this time, but, but interesting. And like through it, I just kept organizing stuff, you know, because it's just what I do. Um, the mix festival started to grow in, uh, get, uh, turn into these like large warehousey autonomous, temporary autonomous zones, Hmm. um, which were really fun. But then there were problems that would come up and that eventually crashed and burned also. Um, I held my first Moonlight Beach party in 2012 okay. uh, because my van broke down and I did not have the money to pay for it. Mm. Um, and those became a beautiful thing for a couple of years to a point where, like, I think the biggest one was, like, maybe 400 people, four wow. or 500 people, like, showing up in the middle of the night, like, following a secret secret 
treasure map to like where it was safe for us to be down in the beach. I started driving down to the beach a lot, Mm -hmm. spending a lot of time, like not just at Reese, but at Port Tilden. I'd go at night a lot. Mm -hmm. I'd bring people at night a lot. Um, Somebody last week at Reese blamed me in a funny way (laughs) for part of why like Reese has gotten so wall to wall packed and it's it's Mm -hmm. not, it's not my fault. Yeah, yeah. But I definitely did bring a lot of people down to the beach. <laughs> Sugarland closes. Oh, the Spectrum opened in 2011. Okay. I remember that. It was right after the Mix Fest. Occupy Wall Street mm. and Spectrum opened the same week. Oh, wow. And I was, um, I curated this thing, the Mix Exploratorium, hmm. which was right next door to Mix the week after. Uh, we had this gallery space for a couple of weeks, and people would come, go back and forth between like, occupy and this gallery space where we would like bake cookies and have potlucks and like do cute shit and you know yeah. it was like another big group show with a bunch of people in it mm-hmm. jack and peter did a huge installation for that gentrification of the mind came out in 2012 we all talked about that a lot okay. this was also i organized um with lj roberts and ted kerr um with visual aids Early 2012, we did a series of storytelling of, like, past, present, and future of, of AIDS. Mm-hmm. Started using that phrase, not over, mm. for that. And, you know, and gentrification of the mind came out. Also, like, this was, we talked about AIDS a lot okay. in 2012, I remember. Um, ha, yeah, one of our sisters from the castle, Sharon Needles, won Drag Race <laughs> that year. And then Sharon... I mean, Alaska, we were closer with. Yeah. Now Alaska is like the queen of drag race. Yeah. Um, but I have pictures of Alaska at the castle, you know. Wow. Um, I have pictures of like, actually, I think Alaska lighting Sharon Needle's bowl <laughs> <laughs> at the castle. So I'll find that one for you. Okay. Um, yeah. I see Operation Sandy. Oh, that was when the Hurricane Sandy hit. Yeah. The first Bushwig was that fall. That was 2012. And then that sort of, you know, took off. Took off yeah. into this thing. But really, like, some of the roots of that are at the castle, mm. um, which was over in that neighborhood. Um, the Bureau opens in 2013. I was the first photo. These are the first, this was the first photography exhibit or the first art exhibit at the Bureau. Okay. I decided to start doing that. Oh, the forest of the future. <sighs> yeah. My God, there's so many things. <laughs> Sorry, this is all queer history. Yeah, no, it is. Um, how are we doing on time, though? Like, I don't know. Yeah. I can keep wandering through all of this, but... I mean, it's totally up to you. Um, you said you might have to go around five, right? I should go around at five, yeah. At five. Okay, so we should start maybe quickening up wrapping up a little bit yeah i can get lost in this stuff yeah um i mean we're yeah we're gonna document this and make sure yeah forest of the future was really amazing Mm -hmm. forest of the future was we got a warehouse in greenpoint i've been having all these dreams okay and about the future and whatever so we started so decided to get a warehouse and bring these dreams to life um 
with a bunch of artists and all the materials of through the arts that you could possibly throw in a space. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like, um, it was totally underground. It was all word of mouth. We kept it open for a month. Mm-hmm. Um, probably about a thousand people came through. Okay. Um, we thought a lot about the future. There was like storytelling. There were like, we held a summit of stories. There were people, Donald Gallagher had just lost his partner. Donald Gallagher was at, is another person you should interview. Mm-hmm. He was at Stonewall. And his partner uh, since 1964 passed and he came to the forest a week later. I'll send you the video of it mm-hmm. and just like told the story of this romance. I just like spellbinding, just wow. beautiful. Um, Sugarland closed. <laughs> we did this thing at the Whitney. <laughs> I organized an underground psychic, sh- uh, psychic chamber underneath the Whitney during the Whitney biennial oh, that wow. was like sort of uncredited but also like okay uh-huh. like a couple hundred people showed up in their best art prom drag <laughs> um it was quite a night okay. um we went to the beach after that we had the huge party and then that that summer Aslan Nettles was killed mm. and that's a real for me that was like a really big turning point in all of this okay there's like that's another before and after moment mm-hmm. so in the summer of 2013 uh, I was invited to like run the craft shack at a one week summer retreat for queer homeless youth. And mm-hmm. I was living out of my van at the time mm-hmm. and was like, okay, that sounds like a good gig. Like I'll go do that. Even though, you know, I get really like cunty about things that are like, we're going to fix queer homeless youth in a week for like, by getting, yeah. you know, I was just like, I don't, I don't actually believe in the philosophy of this, but also like I can do that, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. that's fine. And it changed all of our lives because mm-hmm. that was the week that Aslan Edels was killed and uh, some of the young people knew her and um, it just changed a lot of things mm-hmm. um, for me and and for a lot of us. So it was like this cross of like, let's say this network of people, mm-hmm. um, sort of like nightlife artists underground kind of people dance party kinds of people drag queen kinds of people um that set of people crossed with um sylvia's place yeah and trans women of color sex workers people who are living in the streets in a different way Mm -hmm. and yet there was a lot of connection and love between us too right um and something about supporting them through the loss of, like, yet another trans girl. Like, they'd seen it before. It was happening again. But, like, there we would, like, we could light a bonfire and throw it into the fire, you know? Yeah. And uh, we realized that we had work to do together. Mm. That there was, like, support, you know. There were, It was, like, a two-way street. There was, like, a there was something in that dialogue. Mm. And um, also we were, like, all stoners. <laughs> we were, like, <laughs> okay, we just became friends, you know? Yeah. There was, like, a really... So that ended, and I started driving the pony, which is my van, mm-hmm. over to Sylvia's place every week, and uh, which eventually turned into something called the family dinners, where we started cooking dinner there once a week. Mm-hmm. And it was more of, like, bringing this network of people, the yeah. network of artists and, and whoever, into, like, literally physically into the space, like the only queer emergency queer shelter in the city yeah. and like the shittiest shelter in the city that is being really horribly run by kind of horrible people. Mm-hmm. And then you've got your like 
your staff who have been there for a long time, some of whom have like lived through that, like people who have lived that life, like holding it together because this is where young people come to crash when they don't have anywhere else to go and none of the other like fancy programs have room for them. Yeah. Um, it's really important and yet it's like, it is not a nice place. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were like, oh, we want to like artistically mentor the young people. We're like, no, we need to cook dinner. Like, yeah. just, like let's get the basic needs taken care of first. Mm-hmm. So we all started coming through um, once a week. It lasted for a couple of years where once a week we would go in and we would cook dinner together and like these relationships got formed that were really strong. Um, and that is where the work collective begins. And that's the collective that I have now. And we're now organizing our sixth summer together. Um, you know, we knew too that, and the second year, by the second year, like the people who had started it thinking that one week in the woods was a good idea. Mm -hmm. Uh, we're like, no, this is a year-round process. This is like a light. This is this is different. This is transformative work. Yeah. Um, so we took over the camp by the third summer and have been organizing it ever since. And that's where the work collective comes from. Mm-hmm. It's a big mushmash of people who have passed through all of these different projects and things that we've made. A lot of young people who have like survived a lot of things. Trans women of color who are like has survived a lot of things. Um, but we're all like want to make movies <laughs> you know and like do cool art shit we make a lot of protest art and like march some banners into the streets mm-hmm. the next year a place called we started a thing called the workshop at the joan mitchell foundation they were like oh you should just it'll be like the craft shack that we run in mm-hmm. the summertime every week the young people can come through so we did that for a year um it was a good experiment um, we made some cool stuff. We did a lot of cool, like, community collaboration things. But uh, ultimately, like, there were other uses for our time that were better. Uh, mix, the big one. Yeah, and then the Mix Festival was growing, too. Like, every year it was just, like, more and more and more people. And then it got a little more chaotic. Um, Silas filmed The Golden Age of Hustlers. Justin Vivian Bond and that actually like if you look at the video for the Golden Age of Hustlers that's like a lot of a lot of friends Mm. are in that and people who are like from these worlds that we're talking about Dan Fishback started the squirts thing oh that was 2013 squirts continued we started working on Wild Ponies which is our movie that we finally finished this summer but that started in 2014 that was like Arts in the Woods people were all like, let's make a movie. So we started making a movie. We filmed it that summer. Um, and it was about a conversation between, it started, the, the opening scene is a conversation between a black trans woman and a white gender nonconforming mm-hmm. artist who are both living with HIV down in Hassa housing in the Rockaways and their friends. Mm-hmm. And it like starts with their friendship. And then like they, it like, takes place over the course of one night and we sort of like see what happens um, to them. The way that we've edited it now, it's it's really about Rocky, one of the characters, because that's what we have filmed and that's what we could edit and that's like as far as we got with it. But, um, you know, it was really about, about the ways that our worlds were colliding with each other. Yeah. And like this really beautiful... Um, queer magic that we were making through all of these art things that we do, like all of these spaces that we kept, that we kept, that I know I had a hand in helping hold open for people to come through, um, crossed with this like 
really deep survival network that has been operating yeah. for generations, right? Um, you know, and what do we what do we learn from each other, and like how do we interact with each other, and how much fucking fun can we have together too? So there's that. Mm-hmm. Um, Queer Planet, we did a huge thing. We marched in the People's Climate March. We had like a couple hundred people come through and build these giant drag queen puppets. And yeah. like, we marched all day. Justin Vivian Bond came for that. That was really cute. <laughs> um, but yeah, we had a couple hundred people in like elemental drag. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that fall, like, Black Lives Matter started to really burst out and became really intense we were in the streets a lot we made a lot of street banners okay. a lot of street banners and like marched a lot hey queen ended around then mm. <laughs> elizabeth taylor goes to hollywood justin sayer who is now in hollywood writing all sorts of stuff that was when he used to live in the castle mm. um yeah so 2015 uh, the family dinners ended we filmed Light the Way, which is this music video that we'll, we will finally get to see mm-hmm. when Wild Ponies comes out. We made a music video at Arts in the Woods that year. That was the last big mix festival mm-hmm. before they went through a deep accountability process and everything changed. That okay. was 2015. <laughs> the Stonewall movie debacle. <laughs> What a debacle. But my sisters, Kristen, Kristen Lovell and Elizabeth Marie Rivera, were, like, really vocal online about that shit. Mm-hmm. They're two of the, the, like, central members of the work collective, so they okay. pushed that really hard. Um, and then the Spectrum closed at the end of 2015. Mm-hmm. So that's this piece of history. There's yeah. more yeah. from the last few years. It just continues to evolve. Yeah. I guess maybe to make sure we don't take up too much of your time. Um, But I guess it would be fitting if you're comfortable to end with Brim. Yeah. Because that was the thing that kind of brought this paper into being. Yeah. And so what are your kind of like last comments about that and like what happened with Brim Kelly? Bryn was here for all of this. And, you know, Bryn was being failed by the state in her attempts to help herself, you know. Bryn was a poor trans woman who couldn't afford to, like, you know, get all of the care that a person should get when they're going through the kinds of shit that she was going through. Yeah. And Bryn did something that made a lot of people angry, which was end her life. Um, I wish she could live to see where we're at right now and like you know I this still all feels like backstory for something that's yet to come mm-hmm. and is always unfolding all around us right uh queer magic is everywhere like queerness i always think of like especially when i was transient for these couple of years when i was living in the van and i didn't really have a place to be mm-hmm. except for this tiny space that i could take with me like i thought of 
queer is a home that you carry in your heart. It's a badge that you wear under your skin. Mm. It's like a meditation. And it's like a thing that you take with you. So I guess it's all around us. But I wish I wish she was around for more of it. Because mm. she, she helps she helps craft this cultural moment that we're in like what is the value of cultural work you know yeah and back to those ideas about how does change happen what is structural racism or what is structural genderism or you know structural transphobia or like just all of the shit the structure is fucked like the structure was created by people who suck we're aware of that we know that that is our collective lived experience right (laughs) um and uh you know and even having like climbed to the top of the nonprofit ladder and been in this place that's like giving the money away, you know, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And this does, you know, creating magic with and for each other does. But we're not there yet as a community like when we think about what community is and what community means and what it's supposed to be and what it's supposed to do you know like a, there's uh i get an image of a safety net right i'm i try to throw out all the, the trauma images of community you know but like what it's what the beauty of what it's supposed to be is like what interdependence actually means um oh by the way oh the Moonlight Beach Party, the first one, was where we started calling it Interdependence Day, mm. um, which I think has stuck. Yeah. Um, I don't think that was used before then. Mm. So, <laughs> for what it's worth. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but what does interdependence actually mean? Mm-hmm. And where are we actually failing? Like, how do we critically look at those holes and figure out how to stitch them up? Like, I think... We're having deep conversations right now about meth and how many people's lives are getting like really devastated by it. And again, it's not, it's in, it's in my like fairy circles. It's in my artist circles. It's with the young people that I know. And like, it's, it's with the trans women of color that I know. It's like in these different circles of people Mm -hmm. that are part of my life and I, it's destroying us. But like, what do we do? Like two young people who I've known since 2013 who I really care about, like, are, have been on the streets since then. Mm-hmm. And I guess, like, were spotted last week and they're, like, losing their facial features and, you know, they're just devastated by this drug. Do we take them to camp with us? Mm-hmm. Like, do I let them go because I can't help them? Mm-hmm. Is there some way, like, is there something we can develop to help people who are in that situation? Like, like queer-specific care like I love that the movement has grown to a point where like we're able to consider these questions more than just like hey cute let's have a field day wow we're a community you know okay what does it mean Mm -hmm. you know and and the accountability question especially like you know we talked about this when we're looking at this picture when I'm looking at a person who I was close with who was very abusive to another person in this photograph and has never been held accountable for that Mm. And continues to throw sex parties in our community, hmm. you know, hmm. when like they have been abusive to every femme that they've dated. Hmm. Like, why is that okay? Mm-hmm. And I think that like in this larger, I guess, lifelong project of building communities between and across different conversations and uh, 
seeing those communities as deeply connected to movement building and to like building power to change the shit that is actually fucked up about the world, right? Through cultural work, through like changing our culture. Like that is the thing. That is the project of queer community in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. At least that's what I'm involved. That's like what I'm interested in. Yeah. Um, we're not there yet. And so to me, like Bryn, thinking about Bryn in the context of all of this, she is a person that we lost because we weren't there yet. Mm -hmm. And I carry her with me, you know, in the hopes that you know, never again. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Except that it will. So it will and it will continue to be that way like kind of forever like some in some ways that's the nature of the world but i don't accept that mm. i think we can do better mm. and i think that we're, we're we're getting there like it's palpable you know again i have this like funny time capsule document from 2011 where i was like trying to push the foundation to like support trans movement building yeah. and so you know I know, like, I have a marker in time where I know the before and the after that I've mm-hmm. lived through. Like, you know, I started using they pronouns in 2010 or 11, somewhere around here, okay. you know. And now it's a thing. <laughs> like, it's legal to do that in your driver's license in Oregon. You know what I yeah. mean? Like, that was a, not where we were at. Mm-hmm. And yet, that's not that long ago, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's it's funny. It's a we're living through something really profound, but we're not all gonna make it to like be more in the light, or I don't know, to like the this beautiful promise of what what we can be and what we can become and. Um, while that is just truth and death is part of life, I don't accept her death. Mm-hmm. We can do better. <laughs> and so we soldier on. Yeah. <laughs> Soldiers yeah. of love, you know. Mm. yeah i guess that's it yeah well thank you so much you're welcome yeah